Letter to a Harsh Critic by Gilles Deleuze You're charming, clever, mischievous, even vicious sometimes. You try to be a bit nicer, because the letter you've sent me, turning sometimes on what people say, sometimes on what you yourself think, or a mixture of the two, is basically a sort of celebration of my supposedly sorry predicament. You tell me, on the one hand, that I'm trapped, completely trapped, in my life, my teaching, politically, that I've become a lousy celebrity, but not for long, and there's nothing I can do about it at all. You tell me, also, that I've always just tagged along behind you, the real experimenters or heroes, sucking your blood, savoring your poisons, but keeping at a safe distance to watch and capitalize on what you're doing. That's not how I see it at all. Real and pretend schizophrenics are giving me such a hard time that I'm starting to see the attractions of paranoia. Long live paranoia. What's your letter supposed to inspire apart from a bit of resentment? You're trapped. You're trapped. Admit it. And a bit of guilt. You've got no self-respect. You're just tagging along. And if that's all you've got to say, why bother? You're getting your own back for having written a book about me. Your letter's full of false sympathy and a real thirst for revenge. In the first place, though, you might remember it wasn't my idea, this book. You say you did it for a laugh, for no good reason, for money, for social advancement. I'm not sure it's the best way to get all that. Then again, that's your business, and I told you from the start that your book was nothing to do with me, and that I wasn't going to read it, or I would read it when it came out, as saying something about you. You came to see me, asking for something or other you could put in it. And really, just to be nice to you, I suggested an exchange of letters, as simpler and less tedious than a taped interview. On the understanding that the letters would be printed quite separately from your book, as a sort of appendix. You're already taking advantage of me by distorting our agreement somewhat and complaining that I've behaved like some old Duchesse du Guermont, saying, you will hear from me, like an oracle telling me to use the mail, or like Rilke, refusing to give any advice to a young poet. Oh, patience. Being kind isn't, it must be said, your strong point. If I ever stopped liking and admiring people, and some things, I'd feel dead, deadened. But you lot, you seem to have been born thoroughly, bitter. You sneer at everything. Nobody fools me. I'm doing a book about you, but you'll see. Of all possible interpretations, you generally chose the most base or spiteful. Example number one. I like and admire Foucault. I wrote an article about him, and he wrote one about me, from which you quote the remark, Maybe one day we'll see the century as Deleuzean. Your version of this is that we're trading compliments. It doesn't seem to cross your mind that I might really admire Foucault, or that his little remarks a joke meant to make people who like us laugh and make everyone else livid. There's a piece, you know, that explains this innate spitefulness of people who come from the militant left. If you like big ideas, then try talking about kindness and fraternity to a leftist meeting.
then specialize in all forms of carefully calculated animosity in greeting anybody, present or absent, friend or foe, and anything they say with aggressiveness and put-downs. They don't want to understand people, but to check them over. You're checking me over very carefully in your letter. I remember a guy from Gay Lib once saying in a meeting that it was just as well they were around to be our guilty conscience. Weird ambition. Bit like a cop. To be someone's guilty conscience. And you too. It's as though you think about doing a book about, or against me, gives you some power over me. No way. The idea of feeling guilty is, for me, just as repugnant as being someone else's guilty conscience. Example number two, my fingernails, which are long because I don't cut them. At the end of your letter, you say my worker's jacket, it's actually a peasant's jacket, is like Marilyn Monroe's pleated bodice, and my fingernails are like Greta Garbo's dark glasses. And you shower me with ironic and spiteful advice. As you mentioned them several times, my fingernails, let's consider them. One might say that my mother used to cut them for me, and it's to do with the Oedipus complex and castration. A ridiculous interpretation, but a psychoanalytic one. One might also note, looking at my fingertips, that I haven't got the normal protective whorls, so that touching anything, especially fabric, causes such irritation that I need long fingernails to protect them, a teratological selectionist interpretation. Or one might say, and it's true, that I dream of being not invisible, but imperceptible. And the closest I can get to the dream is having fingernails I can keep in my pockets, so I find nothing more disconcerting than somebody looking at them, a social psychologist's interpretation. One might finally say, you mustn't bite your fingernails because they're part of you. If you like your fingernails, bite other people's if you want to and get the chance. A Darien-style political interpretation. But you, you chose the shabbiest interpretation of all. He wants to be different, wants to do a garbo. It's strange, anyway, how none of my friends have ever commented on my nails finding them perfectly natural, as though they had just landed there like specks blown in the wind that nobody bothers mentioning. I'll come now to your first criticism, where you find all sorts of different ways of saying you're stuck, you're trapped. Admit it. The public prosecutor. I'm not admitting anything. Since what's at issue, though no fault of mine, is a book about me. I'd like to explain how I see what I've written. I belong to a generation, one of the last generations that was more or less bludgeoned to death with the history of philosophy. The history of philosophy plays a patently repressive role in philosophy. It's philosophy's own version of the Oedipus complex. You can't seriously consider what you yourself think until you've read this and that and that on this, and this on that. Many members of my generation never broke free of this. Others did, by investing their own particular methods and new rules, a new approach. I myself did history of philosophy for a long time, read books on this or that author. But I compensated in various ways by concentrating, in the first place, 
on authors who challenged the rationalist tradition in this history. And I see a secret link between Lucretius, Hume, Spinoza, and Nietzsche constituted by their critique of negativity, their cultivation of joy, the hatred of interiority, the externality of forces and relations, the denunciation of power, and so on. What I most detested was Hegelianism and dialectics. My book on Kant is different. I like it. I did it as a book about an enemy that tries to show how this system works, with various cogs, the tribunal of reason, the legitimate exercise of the faculties, our subjection to these made all the more hypocritical by our being characterized as legislators. But I suppose the main way I coped with it at the time was to see the history of philosophy as sort of a buggery, or, it comes to the same thing, immaculate conception. I saw myself as taking an author from behind and giving him a child that would be his own offspring, yet monstrous. It was really important for it to be his own child, because the author had to actually say all I had him saying. But the child was bound to be monstrous too, because it resulted from all sorts of shifting, slipping, dislocations, and hidden emissions that I really enjoyed. I think my book on Bergson's a good example. And there are people these days who laugh at me simply for having written on Bergson at all. It simply shows they don't know enough history. They have no idea how much hatred Bergson managed to stir up in the French university system at the outset and how he became a focus for all sorts of crazy and unconventional people right across the social spectrum. And it's irrelevant whether that's what he actually intended. It was Nietzsche, who I read only later, who extricated me from all this, because you can't just deal with him in the same sort of way. He gets up to all sorts of things behind your back. He gives you a perverse taste, certainly something neither Marx nor Freud ever gave anyone for saying simple things in your own way, in affects, intensities, experiences, experiments. It's a strange business, speaking for yourself, in your own name, because it doesn't at all come with seeing yourself as an ego, or a person, or a subject. Individuals find a real name for themselves, rather only through the harshest exercise in depersonalization, by opening themselves up to the multiplicities everywhere within them, to the intensities running through them. A name as the direct awareness of such intensive multiplicity is the opposite of the depersonalization affected by the history of philosophy. It's depersonalization through love rather than subjection. What one says comes from the depths of one's ignorance, the depths of one's own underdevelopment. One becomes a set of liberated singularities, words, names, fingernails, things, animals, little events, quite the reverse of a celebrity. So anyway, I got to work on two books along these meandering lines, Difference in Repetition and The Logic of Sense. I know well enough that they're still full of academic elements. They're heavy going, but they're an attempt to jolt, to set in motion something inside me to treat writing as a flow, 
not a code. And I like some passages in Difference and Repetition, those on tiredness and contemplation, for instance, because in spite of appearances, they're living experiences. That's as far as it went, but it was a beginning. And then there was my meeting with Felix Gattari. The way we understood and complemented, depersonalized and singularized, in short, loved one another. Out of that came Antiedipus, and it took things a step further. I've wondered whether one general reason for some of the hostility toward the book is simply the fact that there are two writers, because people want you to disagree about things and take different positions. So they try to disentangle inseparable elements and identify who did what. But since each one of us, like anyone else, is already various people, it gets rather crowded. And we wouldn't, of course, claim that Antiedipus is completely free of any scholarly apparatus. It's still pretty academic, fairly serious, and it's not the pop philosophy or pop analysis we dreamed of. But I'm struck by the way it's the people who've read lots of other books, and psychoanalytic books in particular, who find our book really difficult. They say, what exactly is a body without organs? What exactly do you mean by desiring machines? Those, on the other hand, who don't know much, who haven't been addled by psychoanalysis, have less of a problem and happily pass over what they don't understand. That's why we said that, in principle at least, the book was written for 15 to 20-year-olds. There are, you see, two ways of reading a book. You either see it as a box with something inside and start looking for what signifies, and then, if you're even more perverse or depraved, you set off after signifiers. And you treat the next book like a box contained in the first or containing it. And you annotate and interpret and question and write a book about the book, and so on and so on. Or there's another way. You see the book as a little, non-signifying machine. And the question is, does it work? And how does it work? How does it work for you? And if it doesn't work, if nothing comes through, you try another book. This second way of reading's intensive. Something comes through, or it doesn't. There's nothing to explain, nothing to understand, nothing to interpret. It's like plugging into an electric circuit. I know people who've read nothing who immediately saw what bodies without organs were, given their own quote-unquote habits, their own way of being one. The second way of reading is quite different from the first because it relates a book directly to what's outside. A book is a little cog in a much more complicated external machinery. Writing is one flow among others, with no special place in relation to the others, that comes into relations of current, countercurrent, and eddy with other flows, flows of shit, sperm, words, action, eroticism, money, politics, and so on. Take Bloom. Writing in the sand with one hand and masturbating with the other. What's the relation between those two flows? Our outside, at least one of our outsides, was a particular mass of people, especially young people, who are fed up with psychoanalysis. They're trapped, to use your expression, because they generally continue in analysis after they've started to question psychoanalysis. But in psychoanalytic terms, 
Or a personal note, for example, how can boys from gay lib and girls from women's lib and plenty others like them go into analysis? Doesn't it embarrass them? Do they believe in it? What on earth are they doing on the couch? The fact that this current is there made anti-Oedipus possible. And if psychoanalysts, ranging from the most stupid to the most intelligent ones, have as a whole greeted the book with hostility, but defensively rather than aggressively, that's obviously not just because of its content, but because of this growing current of people getting fed up, listening to themselves saying, Daddy, Mommy, Oedipus, castration, regression, and seeing themselves presented with a really inane image of sexuality in general, and of their own sexuality in particular. Psychoanalysts are going to have to take account in the old phrase of the, quote, masses, end quote, of little masses. We get wonderful letters about this from psychoanalytic lump and proletariat that are much better than critics' reviews. This intensive way of reading, in contact with what's outside the book, as a flow meeting other flows, one machine among others, as a series of experiments for each reader in the midst of events that have nothing to do with books, as tearing the book into pieces, getting it to interact with other things, absolutely anything, is reading with love. That's exactly how you read the book. And the bit I like in your letter, the bit I think is rather wonderful, in fact, is where you say how you read the book, what you yourself did with it. Why, oh why, do you then have to rush straight back into the attack? There's no way out. We'll be waiting for your second volume, and we'll spot what you're up to straight away. No. You're quite wrong. We've already seen where to go next. We'll do the sequel because we like working together. Except it won't be anything like a sequel. With a bit of help from the outside, it will be something so different in its language and thinking that anyone waiting for us will have to say we've gone completely crazy or we're frauds or we couldn't take it any further. It's a real pleasure to confound people. Not that we just want to play at being mad, but we'll go mad in our own way and in our own time. We won't be pushed into it. We're well aware that the first volume of Anti-Oedipus is still full of compromises, too full of things that are all still scholarly and rather like concepts. So we'll change. We already have. It's all going wonderfully. Some people think we're going to continue along the same lines. Some even thought we're going to set up a fifth psychoanalytic group. Yuck. Our minds are on other things that are less public and more fun. We're going to stop compromising because we don't need to anymore. And we always find the allies we want, or who want us. I'm trapped, am I? It's not true. Neither Felix nor I have turned into little leaders of a little school. And we couldn't care less about what people do with Anti-Oedipus because we've already moved on. You see me as trapped politically, reduced to signing manifestos and petitions, a glorified social worker. It's not true. And Foucault's to be praised, uh, among all sorts of things, for being someone, the first person who's disrupted the machinery of recuperation and freed intellectuals from the intellectual's classic political predicament. You, all you can think of is provocation, publication, questionnaires, public confessions. Admit it, admit it. 
I, on the other hand, sense that we're rapidly approaching an era of half-voluntary and half-enforced secrecy. The dawn of a desire that is, among other things, political. You see me as trapped professionally because I went on talking for two years at Vincennes and now you say they say I am no longer doing anything there. You think that by continuing to talk, I was stuck in a contradictory position, refusing to play the professor but stuck in teaching, still chugging along after everyone else had gone off the rails. I do not see any contradiction. I'm not some beautiful soul living out my tragic predicament. I went on talking because I really wanted to, and I was encouraged, attacked, interrupted by militants, people acting crazy, and people who really were idiots and really intelligent characters. Vincennes was a sort of ongoing party. It went on like that for two years, which is long enough. It couldn't go on indefinitely. And now that I'm not talking in that context anymore, you say or report people saying I'm doing nothing, that I'm impotent, a big old sterile queen bee. That's not true either. I've gone into hiding, and I'm still doing my own thing, with as few people as possible. And you, instead of helping me not to become a celebrity, you're there confronting me with the choice between impotence and contradiction. You see me, finally, as personally, domestically trapped. It's not your most subtle point. You explain, I've got a wife and a daughter who plays with dolls and potters around the house, and you think that in light of anti-Oedipus, this is a huge joke. You might have added, I've got a son who's almost old enough to go into analysis. If you think it's dolls that produce the Oedipus complex, or the mere fact of being married, that's pretty weird. The Oedipus complex is nothing to do with dolls. It's an internal secretion, a gland, and you can't fight Oedipal secretions except by fighting yourself, by experimenting on yourself, by opening yourself up to love and desire, rather than the whining need to be loved that leads everyone to the psychoanalyst. Non-Oedipal love is pretty hard work. And you should know that it's not enough just to be unmarried, not to have kids, to be gay, or belong to this or that group in order to get round the Oedipus complex, given all the group complexes, Oedipal gays, Oedipalized women's libbers, and so on. Just look at the piece called Us and the Arabs, which is even more Oedipal than my daughter. So there's nothing to admit. The relative success of anti-Oedipus doesn't compromise Felix or me. In a way, it's nothing to do with us, because we're working on other things. So I'll move on to your other more cruel and hurtful criticism when you say I'm someone who's always just tagged along behind, taking it easy, capitalizing on other people's experiments, on gays, drug users, alcoholics, masochists, lunatics, and so on, vaguely savoring their transports and poisons without ever taking any risks. You turn against me a piece I wrote where I ask how can we avoid becoming professional lecturers on Artaud or fashionable admirers of Fitzgerald. But what do you know about me, given that I believe in secrecy, that is, in the power of falsity, rather than in representing things in a way that manifests a lamentable faith in accuracy and truth? If I stick where I am, if I don't travel around, like anyone else, I make inner journeys that I can only measure by my emotions and express very obliquely and circuitously in what I write. 
And what do my relations with gays, alcoholics, and drug users matters if I can obtain similar effects by different means? What's interesting isn't whether I'm capitalizing on anything, but whether there are people doing something or other in their little corner, and me and mine, and whether there might be any points of contact, chance encounters, and coincidences rather than alignments and rallying points, all that crap where everyone's supposed to be everyone else's guilty conscience and judge. I owe you lot nothing, nothing more than you owe me. I don't need to join you in your ghettos because I've got my own. The question's nothing to do with the character of this or that exclusive group. It's to do with the transversal relations that ensure that any effects produced in some particular way, through homosexuality, drugs, and so on, can always be produced by other means. We have to counter people who think, I'm this, I'm that, and who do so, moreover, in psychoanalytic terms, relating everything to their childhood or fate. By thinking in strange, fluid, unusual terms, I don't know what I am. I'd have to investigate and experiment with so many things in a non-narcissistic, non-edipal way. No gay can ever definitively say, I'm gay. It's not a question of being this or that sort of human, but becoming inhuman, of a universal animal becoming, not seeing yourself as some dumb animal, but unraveling your body's human organization, exploring this or that zone of bodily intensity, with everyone discovering their own particular zones and the groups, populations, species that inhabit them. Who's to say I can't talk about medicine unless I'm a doctor, if I talk about it like a dog? What's to stop me talking about drugs without being an addict, if I like to talk about them like a little bird? And why shouldn't I invent some way, however fantastic and contrived, of talking about something without someone having to ask whether I'm qualified to talk like that? Drugs can produce delire. So why can't I get into a delire about drugs? Why does your particular version of quote-unquote reality have to come into it? You're a pretty unimaginative realist. And why do you bother reading me if that's how you feel? Arguments from one's own privileged experience are bad and reactionary arguments. My favorite sentence in Anti-Oedipus is, No, we've never seen a schizophrenic. What, in sum, does your letter contain? Nothing about you, except the one bit I like. Lots of gossip. Things people say. Where you deftly confuse what they're saying and what you're saying. And maybe that's what you set out to produce. A sort of self-contained jumble of echoes. It's a mannered letter, rather disdainful. You ask me for something you can publish, then say nasty things about me. My letter, given yours, seems like a self-justification. Wonderful. You're not an Arab. You're a jackal. You're doing all you can to turn me into what you complain I'm becoming. A little celebrity, rah, rah, rah. I can do without your help, but I do like you to put an end to the gossip.